Did you like that? You know, it reminds me of a story when um, one of my best friends at Auburn was a, a civil engineering student, and he worked for the civil engineering department at Auburn while he was going to school. And he was telling a story once of a lady that she was always complaining, and, and she said um, she wanted a sidewalk in front of her house. And she was keep saying, make me a sidewalk, make me a sidewalk, make me a sidewalk. And, and one day he was standing out there and he looked at her and he said, poof, you're a sidewalk. So poof, I'm here. One of the things that we need when we're talking to others about the Bible, we need prayer. We need prayer because we need wisdom. It's not always easy to know how to answer questions. It's not always easy how to, to know how to state the truth in a way that is understandable. That's, that's a challenge because it involves communication. Communication is not always easy, is it? Sometimes we, we make a statement and what the recipient of the statement hears is not what we meant to communicate. I, I think about Paul in his letter to the church at Colossae. He asked for their prayers. He asked them to pray for him that God would open a door. And then he said, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, Paul was trained from a teenager in some of the best rabbinical schools. He was on his way to becoming a, a professor of theology, if you will. And yet, even with, with his wisdom, his experience, in, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guidance of the Holy Spirit, he still needed wisdom to communicate because he knew that that, that process was sometimes a challenge. Well, when, when, when you're asked questions, keep that in mind. Here, here's a question that someone might ask you, and this is a, another lesson in the series on why why we believe, why we don't believe. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Well, how you answer that question is going to make an impression. And if you, if you say no, then there's really another word that needs to be added to that question in order to accurately say no. But if you say no, is the person that you're speaking with going to automatically think, oh, so what you mean is you believe that miracles cease during the first century because they met a specific purpose. And that purpose was to confirm or authenticate the message and or the messenger and that the Holy Spirit was operating in a miraculous way so as to endow certain ones with the ability to perform these miracles and, and they ceased with the passing of time as the revelation is, was completed. That's what you mean, right? Nobody's going to think that. Nobody's going to think that. So if someone asks me, do you believe in miracles, my answer first is going to be yes. I do believe in miracles because I believe in the Bible. 
I believe that God is a God of the miraculous. And miracles were truly, not just during the New Testament period, but during the Old Testament period, they were a manifestation of, of the power of God. So yes, I do believe in miracles. But let me share with you now a, a, an experience I had recently. I was visiting another congregation, and this particular congregation, they have a, they, they call it the call to worship. They have different speakers and different members of the congregation who come up and and they actually do a little bit of a devotional as they call the worship to order. And, and he was talking about his, his daughter who was soon to give birth to a daughter. It was going to be his granddaughter. And he said in his discussion, this, this truly is a miracle. And, and when he said that, it, it caused a little bit of tension. You know, I was in a, a church of Christ, and, and he said that this birth is a miracle. I don't know if anyone else shared my, my tension, but it prompted my thinking along the lines, is that the way the Bible speaks of miracles? If the Bible does speak of the miraculous in that way, then I'm a miracle, because I was born too. You're a miracle. In fact, almost everything that happens in our lives that in some way is a demonstration of God's power now becomes a miracle. But if we're going to speak as it were the oracles or the utterances of God, and we've talked about that repeatedly during this series, are we going to use the word miracle in that way? We, we can talk about providence. We can talk about the, the power of God. We can talk about God responding to prayer. He can produce healing. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. He can do that. He's got the power. He has the power, obviously, to do the miraculous today. He hasn't stopped being God. But does the Bible speak of miracles in that way? I think that's really the, the discussion that inevitably we might find ourselves having with someone on this subject. And so that's what I want to talk to you about for just a few moments this morning. And, and we're going to sort of go in the direction of why we believe miracles have ceased and ask the question, well, when did that happen? And, and the first point that I would make is with respect to the purpose. Let's go back to the Bible and let's, let's see if we can define biblically from the Scriptures the purpose of miracles. And this is not, as we often say, this is not rocket science. It's actually a very easy discussion based on what the Bible clearly states with respect to the purpose of miracles. And let's begin with the, the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus performed many miracles. What did John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write with respect to the purpose of those miracles? In John chapter 20 and verse 30, therefore many other signs. Now, I want to stop right there. If you have your Bibles open, in the New American Standard, the, the word signs is translated attesting miracles. Now, the reason I want to stop there is because that's, that's a word from my world a test. You hear of the audit function. The auditors, they go into banks, they audit the books. 
They go into companies that are publicly traded and they, they do audits, that is, the bean counters. Well, that's also referred to as the attest function. It's not just the audit function, it's the attest function. And, and what the auditor is doing is, for example, if, if a company reports a million dollars of accounts receivable, well, do you just believe they have a million dollars of accounts receivable? You just accept that. No, they do an audit. Do you ever get those little pieces of paper from the bank? You probably never knew what this was. It's actually not coming from the bank. It's coming from a CPA firm. And what they do in that, in that little piece of paper, they, they list your loan balance as of the end of the year, and they ask you to sign it and, and confirm that that balance is correct. Have you ever got one of those letters? You probably had no clue what that was about, unless you're an auditor. Well, the CPA firm chooses a sampling of those who have mortgages and sends out those letters, and you are to check your loan balance. It's a random sample, and, and then send that letter back, and they put that in their audit work papers. What they're doing is attesting the truthfulness of that balance. Well, these are referred to as signs or attesting miracles because they prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The miracles that Jesus performed proved that he was the Son of God. They were attesting miracles. Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, many other signs. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago to see those miracles. Neither were you. There were those who lived during the first century who were not there to see the miracles that Jesus performed. So how do we come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? We read the Bible. And through our reading of these miracles and our confidence that this is an accurate document, this is the revealed mind of God, we come to have faith. So the miracles during his time and the record of those miracles during our time serve a very specific purpose. They confirm or they attest the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. Now, after Jesus died, was raised, and ascended back to the Father. If you're familiar with the scriptures and the work of the apostles, you know that he sent them into all the world to preach the gospel. They also performed miracles. Why did they perform miracles? Mark chapter 16, verse 20. Mark chapter 16, verse 20. They went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that follow signs or attesting miracles. So just as the purpose of the miracles was to confirm or to authenticate the message that Jesus was the Son of God, when the apostles performed miracles, those miracles served the purpose of confirming that their message was the truth because anybody could have came along and said, I'm an apostle of Christ. I have a message whereby you might be saved. And there were false apostles then, just like there are false apostles now. 
the way they proved that they were speaking the truth was the miracles that they performed. Now look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to find those words again here in the preaching of the apostle Peter, who was one sent by Jesus to proclaim the message of salvation through a risen Savior. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 20, as Peter was preaching to them, in his sermon, he stated, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man, there's our word again. You see it? Acts 2 verse 22, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now, he is also going to point to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God. But if you think about it, if you look at all the prophecies that were made of Jesus, let's just consider one, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, was Jesus the only one born in Bethlehem? There were others born in Bethlehem. So while he fulfilled that prophecy, he did fulfill all of the prophecies. The miracles added more proof than just the prophecies, the fulfillment of those prophecies. And Peter here is saying to those gathered on the day of Pentecost, you know about this. You know about these miracles because you heard them, many of you saw them. Now some would have to read about those miracles in time to come, but the miracles serve the purpose of confirming the word. And in verse 36, you see, as Peter brings his lesson to a close, he states, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain. Know for certain. How do you know for certain that Jesus was who he claimed to be? The fulfillment of prophecy and the miracles that he performed. One other passage, and we'll move to our next point, that I think clearly states this, is... In Hebrews, the second chapter, when the author of the book of Hebrews, writing to Jews, makes reference first to the Old Testament in verse 2, for the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation under the new covenant? After it was at the first spoken through the word, Notice the consistency here between what the Hebrew author is stating and what we just read in Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, the apostles who went out. After it was at first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed. It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So that just simply reaffirms what we've already seen, that is, the purpose of miracles. Now, getting back to our beginning, most people don't think of miracles in that way, do they? And, and you can't necessarily criticize them for that because they haven't read what the Bible teaches about the purpose of miracles. But now that you know, you only need a few verses to explain that. So you can do that as, as you give an answer for the hope that is within you when it comes to this matter of, of miracles. Well, has this purpose been fulfilled? Have the miracles ceased? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In this particular chapter, Paul is writing about love at the beginning of the chapter. But when you step back and look at the bigger picture, he's not just writing about love, but he's letting those in the church at Corinth who were abusing their spiritual gifts 
know of a more excellent way, that more excellent way being love. You would not be having all of these problems in the congregation. You would not be having all of these disputes. You wouldn't be bragging about your spiritual gifts. You wouldn't be falling all over one another to exercise those spiritual gifts if you, if you had love. And that's why he talks about love in those first uh, seven verses. But notice in verse 8 he states, love never fails. Well, let's, let's, let's be on the lookout for something here. If, if love never fails, then what does? He's, he's discussing miraculous gifts. He's discussing the gift, for example, in verse 8, of prophecy. He's discussing the gift of tongues. He uh, is discussing the gift of knowledge. And note here that each one of those had to do with the communication of truth. The revelation of the mind of God. The miraculous activity, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge had to do with the word that was spoken. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. This is all the miraculous activity. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So we're looking for something here. Now I've heard some say that the perfect is Jesus. We like associating Jesus with the word perfect. And, and I want to ask you to show me a verse. He was perfect. He was perfect. He kept the law perfectly. But show me the verse that clearly states that the perfect is Jesus. And keep it in context. We're looking for something to cease when the perfect comes. If it's the coming of Jesus, then we're still living in the age of the miraculous. We're still living in the age of miracles. But what was the purpose of the miracles? It was to confirm the message. Now let's look at James chapter 1, and you'll see why I referenced this verse, because I think it makes it clear what the perfect is. In James chapter 1 and verse 25, when James is writing to those of the, the dispersion, he's writing to Jews, he states in verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. That which is perfect is the law. It's the fulfillment of the giving of God's revelation during the first century. And we know that that was complete because in Jude verse 3, it is stated to contend earnestly for the faith, that body of doctrine which was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's stop and get our, our bearings here. The miracles proved the authenticity of the messenger and the message. The message has been given. The message is complete so the miraculous served its purpose. If we look at miracles from the way that the Bible describes the definition or the purpose, then we have to acknowledge that the purpose has, has ceased. Now let's look at something else. And I think this is probably the, the, um, the nail in the coffin as far as the miraculous. In Acts the 8th chapter, we read about Philip going up to Samaria and Philip preached in that particular area. There was something that didn't happen 
when Philip preached. In verse 14, Acts chapter 8, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Why? They, they were being baptized. Philip was preaching the gospel. Why did they send Peter and John? Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now we know that when we're baptized, we receive the gift of the Spirit. There is the Spirit within us. But that doesn't mean we can perform miracles. That doesn't mean that we're miraculously endowed with the Holy Spirit. So what had not happened, the Holy Spirit had not came upon them so that they could speak in tongues and, and they could perform miracles. Well, why didn't Philip lay his hands upon those in Samaria? You got your thinking cap on? Why didn't Philip lay his hands upon those in Samaria and impart the gift of the Holy Spirit? Why did Peter and John have to come do this? Verse 17, then they began laying their hands, who? Peter and John. They began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. What did Simon see? I didn't ask, what did Simon say? Are you listening? I asked, what did Simon see? He saw that... Only the apostles could lay their hands upon others and then receive miraculous ability. Okay, here's your thought question. If that's the case, and someone is performing miracles today, what does that tell us about? They're at least 2,000 years old. Because the apostles all died... And we can, maybe it's a necessary conclusion. Everyone upon whom the apostles laid their hands, they died. So miracles serve their purpose. Miracles have ceased. Now here's the last point that I would make, and this will take us into our invitation. It's the gospel that is God's power to save, not miracles. When you look in the world of religion, a lot of what you see is a focus and an emphasis upon the sensational. You've heard me say that before. Even, even the worship experience. Why is it that when you go to a, a mega church or one of the more progressive churches, it's more about the worship experience than it is the preaching of truth? It's because that touches the emotions, that's sensational. But what is God's power to say? What did Paul write in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16? It is the gospel that is God's dynamite. It is the preaching of truth that produces salvation. Well, what does that have to do with miracles? Well, it, I think it helps us to take our mind off what is of less significance in our time because the word has been spoken, the word has been confirmed, what we are to be doing is to be preaching and teaching that gospel whereby others might be saved. Let's look at an example that I think reinforces this point. It's, it's the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. 
I remember the first time I read this and really saw it. It just it had an impact upon me. In, in Luke chapter 16, in verses 19 through the end of the chapter, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But I want to focus in on certain, a certain part of this, and that is the desire of the rich man who found himself in torment. He was concerned about his family. He said about those who were his family, he said, I, I beg you, my Father, that you send him, that is, Lazarus, to my father's house. Verse 27. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You know, even in torment, he's looking for the sensational. If somebody goes to them from the dead, surely they'll repent. What had Abraham just said? They have Moses and the prophets. And then Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So the power was not in the miraculous. The power was in the gospel. We're going to sing a song of encouragement in just a moment for those who have not obeyed the gospel. But as we again bring this lesson to a close... I'm going to go to a place that we've gone several times, and that's the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. If, if, I, if I'm going to use one case of conversion that seems to cover almost all of the bases, it's the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and note this, this point about the power in the gospel and not the miraculous, not the sensational. Philip, we just saw, went to Samaria. He preached. We just saw how that Peter and John came and laid their hands on those who had obeyed the gospel so that they would receive the miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But after they had testified the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. That's verse 25, which would include Philip. But an angel of the Lord, in verse 26, spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So the angel is directing Philip to the eunuch who's reading from the book of Isaiah and is going to teach him what he has to do to be saved. Well, would it have been sensational? I mean, would it have been more convincing if the angel would have preached the gospel? I mean, that's kind of the emphasis upon maybe the, the miraculous or the sensational. But where's the power? The power's in the word. He got up and he went, verse 27, there was this Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, sitting in the chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit, note that, then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Well, if you're Philip, you could say, why don't you go teach him? You're the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't he be more convinced if the Holy Spirit suddenly appeared in some form, maybe a dove, and, and began to preach to him the gospel? No, the Spirit said, you go up and do it. So the angel didn't do it. The Spirit didn't do it. Philip did it. Why Philip? God put the message in earthen vessels. He put the treasure in an earthen pot so as to magnify the power of the message. 
It's not the miraculous that saves. It's the gospel that saves. Eunuch answered Philip and said in verse 34, Please let me know of whom does the prophet say this. He was reading from Isaiah 53 of himself or of someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, if you're subject to the invitation this morning, that's a question you need to ask. Look, water, what, what prevents you from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now, that sounds miraculous. But it didn't have, happen before he obeyed the gospel. It happened after. The power is in the message. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, you can be saved, not by a miracle, but by your confession that Jesus is the Son of God, by your desire to be immersed in the blood of Jesus in baptism. You can leave here today a Christian. If you're subject to the call, please come as we stand and sing.